You are about to enter into a new world of knowledge, curiosities, and high strangeness. This is a podcast of Straight Up Strange Productions. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon supporters. Become a patron today at patreon.com forward slash into the portal. Throughout history, there have been many stories told of a fantastical nature that are scrutinized and reduced to mere legend or myth. Fabrications made for various ends by shadowy figures, pushing the limits of what we know as scientific facts. Indeed, one of the biggest controversies in the canon of conspiracy theories surrounding the US military is that of the seriously strange and horrifying circumstances of the notorious Philadelphia Experiment. Considered by many to be among the most intriguing of an array of alleged illicit experiments that push the boundaries of modern physics and the possibilities of electromagnetic fields, the events of October 28, 1943 may be a conspiracy theory to some, while for others, there are indeed grains of truth hiding amongst the redacted and discarded pages of military history. Join us for part one of a two-part series as we explore the bizarre story and aftermath of the Philadelphia Experiment. Hello, I'm Amber A. And I'm Andrew McKay. Welcome back into the portal. Your gateway to the bazaar. <laughs> <laughs> well, folks, uh, we are back and we're going into some seriously weird territory for this episode today. Yes. None other than one of the biggest U.S. government conspiratorial controversies known as the Philadelphia Experiment. This one revolves around circumstances that are like we said, seriously strange and horrifying on uh, multiple levels. <laughs> yeah, I would say to so. To a certain degree here. And it, it, it does revolve around this attempt to use technology that may or may not exist in the fringes <laughs> of uh, top secret military departments. That's right. But yeah, it all went down just before the end of the Second World War, which is pretty cool. So yeah, allegedly there was a secret program that was designed to render military ships completely invisible to their enemy. Even more bizarre, this technology was said to have actually had teleportation potential. Whether or not the original experimenters were intending this is kind of another uh, topic of debate. <laughs> right. But yeah, it's utterly strange, guys. Like <laughs> Andrew put in our notes here, this is like the Minnesota Iceman type strange. It kind here. of is. So yeah, we're talking about like, you know, conspiratorial angles to this. Mm. Uh, of course, secretive experiments. We got time travel elements, uh, even a little bit of Nikola Tesla thrown in there, Albert Einstein government cover-ups, and yeah, so much more. So there's Indeed. a lot to get into, and uh, yeah, we're excited. Yeah, definitely. Good little lead-up there, Amber. Thank you for that. <laughs> and uh, I guess we should just jump right into the origins here, because there is so, so much to talk about with this, and it is, like you said, like probably one of the most classic conspiracy stories, conspiracy mm. legends when it comes to especially military stuff. So it's sort of, it's kind of funny we haven't actually covered this yet. We've had, we have had people toss it out there on the socials in the past and we've always kind of like chucked in on the back burner. So I'm, I'm glad we're here because yeah. 
It's weird, and I kind of forgot just how how weird it was. Mm-hmm. You said kind of towards the end of the war. That's that's sort of the timeline we're working with here. It was forty three, you know, two years into the U.S.'s involvement into the Second World War. Right. I always um, forget they were late to the game. They were late, yeah, slightly yeah. late to the game. After I guess which what, what was Pearl it Harbor that? was forty one. Yeah, forty one. That's yeah, right. Okay, I always get my dates all mixed around with things. <laughs> okay. The origins of this are in 1943, so two years U.S. into the war, where there's a truly horrific series of events happening at sea, right? The battles are ranging between the American destroyers and the now infamous U-boat submarines of the Nazis, which were pretty much owning the seas at this time. So the Allies were looking for anything uh, to have an upper hand, obviously, right? Mm-hmm. And back on the home front, something very uh, peculiar was associated with this attempt to try to uh, take advantage of the seas. And it occurred allegedly on the 28th of October, 1943, at the Philadelphia Naval Shipyard. Uh, so this is right off of the downtownish area, if I'm not mistaken, in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. One source we looked at uh, actually claimed that this Philadelphia experiment, as it's known, obviously, was originally called Project Rainbow, which I believe is actually a part of a series of other tests and experiments and research that was happening at the beginning of the war and throughout the war and definitely happening on both sides of the pond uh, between not just the allies, that's for sure. One source we looked at uh, claimed the Philadelphia experiment was actually called Project Rainbow originally. And according to the story, a Project Rainbow existed under this secret division of experimental research. And the leaders of this division decided to use a Navy ship at this particular port for their alleged series of classified tests, experiments of a nature which remain inconclusive and remain subject to much speculation to the love of uh, conspiracy theorists all over the world. (laughs) But things did not exactly go as planned and horrifically wrong, you might say on the one hand, and as Amber just mentioned off air, horrifically right Possibly, depending on who you talk to. Horrific, yet successful. Right. Mm -hmm. So this particular day, an experiment was carried out aboard a ship uh, by the U.S. Navy's, this division, we're just talking about Project Rainbow. The ship in particular was the USS Eldridge. This was a Navy destroyer escort vessel used to help get merchant vessels and other, you know, non-destroyer ships across the Atlantic. And the legend goes that in Philadelphia that day, They are about to proceed with this highly classified series of experiments designed to manipulate electromagnetic fields. Now, more specifically, manipulating the electromagnetic fields directly surrounding the ship. The goal being to make the ship invisible, to render it completely invisible. And apparently, by extension, teleportable. Technologies that would obviously prove to be of the utmost importance and like the ultimate defense weapon for the U.S. military at this time, perfect for what was needed during the Second World War, where all these vessels were subject to the just scores of enemy submarines in the depths and obviously the technology of the Nazis overhead with their aircraft as well. So, but (laughs) instead of these technologies employing themselves flawlessly, as Project Rainbow had intended, there were some unintended and unpredictable outcomes to the Philadelphia experiment that day, as the legend goes. And what actually ended up happening, if you believe the legend, was way more bizarre and far more gruesome than anyone could have possibly imagined. But before we get into it, there's so, so much to get into. So before we grill right into the gruesome details of that day specifically, we want to actually fast forward a little bit to a tr- uh, to really unravel the story from its origin point, which actually lies with this controversial figure in UFO history, uh, in the UFO community and its origins, really. A guy named Morris Ketchum Jessup, and uh, he would actually, you know, really be the center of this bizarre saga that we're starting today. I wouldn't really, we wouldn't know about it if it wasn't for him. Yeah, yeah, to a large degree, hey? And the center is kind of a funny way to phrase it. I feel like there are almost like a couple of very central figures mm-hmm. in this story, and he is one of them, definitely. Sure, for sure. And Morris Ketchum Jessup, he grew up with a keen interest in science, uh, astronomy in particular, and he actually did earn a bachelor's degree in uh, science, from, astronomy science, sorry, from the University of Michigan. Yeah, and I, the reason we wanted to include this is because there's lots of articles out there that really kind of like knock his intelligence or like his actual like 
what he achieved, like his level of mm. academic achievement or like what his credibility in talking about any science was at all. Um, but this was from uh, this was from a couple of different biographies. This one pulled from Find a Grave, <laughs> specifically from his 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 um, ancestry. Yeah. So anyway, yeah. Sorry, my apologies. He wasn't born in the 1920s. He was doing his schooling, his education in the yes. in the 20s. Yes. My apologies. There, he actually did receive a master's degree subsequently in 1926. Mm-hmm. So he did actually, like Andrew noted, he he did pursue higher education uh, and he actually did start work on a doctorate that he never finished yes and that was supposedly an astrophysics apparently so yeah that's interesting he ended his dissertation work in 1931 but he never never finished it like he, he never, never like actually yeah through. exactly even though a lot of people as find a grave um refers to him as like they would often refer to him as dr jessup just because of his status, yeah, I guess, I, in the, the UFO community. He carried himself with the air of a Dr. Jessup, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, he would go on to take a keen interest in the UFO phenomena. And this was at a time where it was actually very dangerous to be involved in mm-hmm. that sort of field by any means. Yeah. And it was interesting because he ended up writing a series of books, the first of which was in 1955, he published uh, what was referred to as a highly controversial book on UFOs. And this was actually called The Case for the UFO. So this work actually emphasized his interest in like anti-gravity. And in particular, there were a couple of things he was looking at here. Uh, how gravity could be harnessed and used as energy. Yes. And then also at the source of this energy or power source of flying saucers that people were seeing in the skies right so pretty crazy (laughs) like andrew put a note here like this is getting into some element 115 it kind of is it's like Like, the bob lazar kind of stuff what's powering some of these crazy things exactly and he this man in particular jessup he has been referred to in ufological circles as quote probably the most original extraterrestrial hypothesizer of the 1950s. And it goes on to say here that Jessup speculated that UFOs were, quote, exploratory craft of solid and nebulous character. Mm -hmm. He did go on to try and link ancient monuments with prehistoric super science. So that, again, is quite interesting. And altogether, he ended up writing three books on the UFO question. Yeah. So... Of course, these books did attract fringe believers in the UFO phenomena. Of course, this was very... If it was mainstream, it was made to seem very much like, you know, science fiction. It's not something that exists. It's like, it's in the movies, obviously, and all that kind of thing. But it's not something that is entertained in academic circles. Yeah, definitely not yet. And I wonder if he had any run-ins with him. The name is escaping me. It's bugging me so much. The guy we talked about who saw all those, um, the series of them flying 1947, we talked about in the Maury Island incident episode. Totally escaping me right now, but I promise I'll come back to that, you guys. (laughs) We have that awesome clip of him on our Instagram where it's like, we've duly reported these things, and we have to have a million credible reports until we care about the problem. Seriously? I wonder if those guys ever uh, connected. Because he was in the same situation because yeah the u.s government was cracking down they didn't want people to believe in this stuff and that's mm-hmm. part of that early like x-files theory right where they like flooded the hollywood with you know that's why there are so many of these sci-fi movies and stuff at that time it was the perfect opportunity to cover things up and that was the easiest way to do it hmm. you know to get well, people interested in a way that just makes it seem ridiculous yeah no it, it's uh um What's the word that I'm thinking of? Uh, it's making a parody of yeah. the topic. So yeah. people, in that sense, can enjoy it as entertainment, not as mm-hmm. a legitimate or credible threat or yeah. anything that actually exists in the real world. <laughs> not yeah. anymore. I, We're getting into I disclosure wish, now. Yeah, exactly. I, yeah, UAPs and all. But, um, yeah, no, I wish... Uh, I wish you could remember that name because I can't. Oh, we'll come back to it after the break. But like I said here, so Jessup's books inevitably attracted the attention of a lot of people. Uh, One such man, actually, uh, was uh, Carlos Miguel Allende, I guess we should say. Mm -hmm. And he was a very peculiar fellow, and we're getting into a lot more about him. But he actually ended up writing to Jessup uh, about a bunch of different things. However... (laughs) <laughs> this is where, where it gets a little bit interesting because this book actually came out 12 years after the alleged events that we are speaking of today. Right. So that's quite a big gap 
But again, right, maybe he was, this guy was just looking for the right opportunity. However, let's get into more about how Allende gets involved in this mystery. But first, we have a quick promo break. Do you find yourself suffering from negative thoughts or feelings that are getting in the way of your personal happiness and achieving your life goals? If so, perhaps it's time you check out BetterHelp Online Counseling Services. BetterHelp.com is there for you with licensed professionals that are specially matched to you and are available worldwide and remotely, all in a safe and private online environment. Seeking help and finding the right person to talk to should be easy, and that's exactly what BetterHelp.com has done. You can begin communicating with a licensed professional in 24 hours, all through your preferred methods of communicating, including secure video or phone sessions, plus online chat and text with your therapist. You can trust that anything you share with your therapist remains completely confidential. And if you feel the need, you can change counselors at any time for no additional cost. BetterHelp has licensed professionals who are specialized in everything from depression, anxiety, family conflicts, and many other areas that may not be available locally. Best of all, it's truly affordable. Into the Portal listeners get 10% off your first month with discount code PORTAL, spelled P-O-R-T-A-L. So why not get started today? Join over 1 million other individuals and go to betterhelp.com portal. Simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor that can make a difference in your life. That's betterhelp.com slash portal. And we're back. So yeah, make sure to check out betterhelp.com with the link uh, below if you guys want to check that out. Mm -hmm. And uh, we wanted to take a second to also, before we get right back into this, welcome and thank our brand new Patreon Sorry, that wasn't timed exactly perfectly, but thank you so, so much, and welcome to Jackson G, uh, Mm -hmm. new uh, Patreon uh, producer, so helping us produce the show. Thank you so much. Amazing. Incredible lineup of producers we have now, and we we truly couldn't do this without you guys and uh, our other Patreon supporters as well. So yeah, welcome. Thank you so much. Can't wait uh, to work with you. Mm -hmm. Also... Right before we get back into this, too, I did do a quick Google, and it was Kenneth Arnold. I'm sure some of you guys listening were wondering mm-hmm. who I was talking about there, the reference I made with the UFO, similar era uh, to um, to Jessup here. And it was, yeah, Kenneth Arnold, if you guys remember from the way back when, if you if you have listened to it, obviously, the Maury Island episode. So he's the one private pilot saw nine unidentified craft. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, at, at that sort of weird transition point for the U.S. and that sort of thing and researching this type of stuff. Post-war, yeah. obviously. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Wanting to keep it on the down low probably because in my mind they're recovering craft and doing some serious post-war research. They just got all their favorite Nazi scientists to cut mosey <laughs> over and do yeah. the research for them, right? <laughs> and uh, the U.S. was uh, was motoring along with that. Anyway, <laughs> coming back to the Philadelphia experiment because it is all tied in with this. It is tied in with UFOs and all that kind of stuff. Truly. It really is. So we are jumping to 1955. So 12 years after the alleged events of the Philadelphia experiment. Mm -hmm. And this is where we get more involvement from the Navy in this mystery. So another layer actually of this mystery arrives when a copy of Jessup's book was anonymously sent to headquarters of the Office of Naval Research. It was sent in a blank manila envelope with the title Happy Easter. (laughs) I would probably be immediately very suspicious and think it's a bomb. (laughs) Especially if it's not Easter. I wonder if it would even Well, that's just it. Did it arrive on Easter Easter Sunday or something? That's a good question because we didn't actually get a date for when this arrived. Although it wouldn't arrive on Sunday because there would be no post. Unless it was private. There's no FedEx back then, was there? Unless you're living on Privet Drive. Right. (laughs) No post on Sundays. No post. That's right. (laughs) That is so strange, though, and it is just, it is, adds that layer to the conspiracy theory, right? Because that's a classic thing. Mm -hmm. A single marked envelope from, with no return to sender that says Happy Easter. I would be dubious. That's a dubious thing to open. Yeah, so like I said, this was anonymously sent. There was no... Uh, no sender, no note, no nothing. It was just this annotated copy of Jessup's book. 
So according to the official letter that was provided by the ONR, which is the Office of Naval Research, it says here, quote, the pages of the book were interspersed with handwritten comments which alleged a knowledge of UFOs, their means of motion, the culture and ethos of the beings occupying these UFOs, described in pseudoscientific and incoherent terms. <laughs> hmm So this is interesting because these series of annotations, I guess you would call it, they actually came in three styles of handwriting, and if I'm not mistaken, three different pen colors, too. Three different colors. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, like, written, looked like three different people. Exactly. However, it was actually determined to all have come from one person. Weird. Yes. So the story gets very intriguing because... Allende, like we mentioned. Or Allende. Or Allende, sorry. I mean, it's a made-up name, so whatever you want. I mean, we, we haven't gotten to that yet, but... <laughs> exactly. <laughs> His alias, I guess right. you would say. <laughs> Allende. So this was the man who was supposedly uh, responsible for these. So he was actually known to Jessup after he sent many, many writings, uh, pages and pages of letters mm-hmm. to Jessup, most of which uh, Jessup considered too far out there, ridiculous to consider serious. So the letters contained rambling and rantings describing many things, among which was this highly fantastical and conspiratorial Philadelphia experiment, as it was known. And it was only after Jessup was summoned to the O&R office yeah. It was actually the pieces of the puzzle were put together because right. they weren't able to shed any light on this very cryptic piece of of uh, literature they had received. Uh huh. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. So and, and and just to just to kind of paint more of a picture for you guys, like when Amber says, you know, like written in the margins, like annotated, it was covered like the whole book, like cover to cover, like every page filled mm-hmm. in every little. Sp- Base where you could write something is what it looked like. Yeah. Uh, with what they described here as like yeah, like pseudo scientific, incoherent things, like talking about, what, like you said, the culture of like the greys, mm-hmm. like the ethos of like of higher beings, and like that's it's definitely strange. But then of course they find this one reference to themselves, mm-hmm. to yes. an experiment involving the navy. Exactly on that one particular. They were willing day. to let the rest slide. All the, the all every all the army. I, I, something about the army but no they noticed right like they noticed that and that's why they summoned jessup mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. they wanted and, to know more and obviously i guess that's the only thing you could do because if there's no return to sender and it's his book who else are you gonna ask mm-hmm. right there's no one else to ask if i'm not mistaken in that history documentary they said it had some sort of texas postal address or something right like that, but yeah. actually and that's a good question i what yeah well he was jessup from te- from texas i can't remember i don't think so no. Unless he had another residence there. He didn't sound like he was particularly wealthy, like he'd have multiple residences across the country. Jessup or Lind? Jessup. Or Allende, sorry. Okay. Jessup. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was a reasonably, normally success- successful person, owned a car, had a house, had some kids. Didn't we'll come, get into that, It didn't that, come I mean, from Jessup, though. This right. copy did not come from no, Jessup. No, no, he no, had no, no association with this at all, other no. than the fact that he was the author of the book that all this was written right. into. No, I'm just saying, like, for them being like, who could have been? Like, yeah, that's all they had was the, the author of the book. That's the only thing they could do. But, of course, yeah, they, they noticed that one of the annotations was mentioning this Philadelphia experiment. And let's get into some of that. Let's get into it, because mm-hmm. it wasn't so detailed in the margins, obviously. It was extremely detailed in the letters sent to Jessup from Allende. And he kind of picked out the ones he liked the best. Like, some of them were extreme ramblings, is, is how he described them. Mm-hmm. Um, but but in a way that still felt as if it was someone trying to say something. Like, it was still him trying to get, like, a point across. Or it was almost cryptic in a way, mm-hmm. is how I, 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 some of Ooh. the articles talked about it and things like that, right? Message. Like, yeah, that, like, in all of the jumble of craziness, there was maybe one... D- deliberate message in there somewhere. You know mm. what I mean? So how much credit are you going to give an author that writes in that stuff? It's tough. It's really tough. But as Allende's tale went, it was at the Philadelphia Naval Yard, October of 1943, when the U.S. Navy reportedly managed to bring both teleportation and invisibility into reality. <laughs> so according to Allende, the ship we're talking about, which we've already mentioned, specifically the full name is the DE-173 USS Eldridge. The experiment worked, and this ship vanished from Pennsylvania, and then was said to have briefly reappeared at Norfolk, Virginia, hundreds of miles away. It stayed there for several minutes, and then dematerialized, 
reappearing at the Philadelphia Naval Yard. So in his letters, he explains to Jessup that he himself was a crew member on board a nearby ship, the USS Andrew Furuseth, which was another Navy vessel. It was a Liberty ship rather than a destroyer. But Allende claimed that in one letter in particular, he witnessed the Eldridge vanishing from view and said, quote, the air around the ship turned slightly, ever so slightly darker than all the other air. I saw after a few minutes a foggy green mist arise like a cloud. I watched as thereafter the DE-173 became rapidly invisible to human eyes. So, mm. that's... And allegedly not just invisible to human eyes, but also to uh, radar equipment. To radar equipment, which is obviously more important. Mm-hmm. Um there's a few more specifics that came with that exact moment where he witnessed this, but I'm going to get into that in just a sec. The specifics of what happened are, are strange because obviously you're thinking, well, if this was a full crew on a ship, we'd have a lot of people to potentially say something about it. But mm. of course, it was a skeleton crew aboard because they didn't want that. So, mm-hmm. And there's, there's been interviews with members of the ship and they say they didn't say anything, but then maybe it was a different crew. <laughs> Save that for later. A skeleton crew was allegedly aboard the USS Eldridge that day. The ship was also loaded with electromagnets and other equipment associated with them. So they were obviously trying to create some sort of a field with that, right? Using mm-hmm. Einstein's unified field theory, which we'll get into later as well. So Allende was watching this and saw this electromagnetic fog, a green fog, if I'm not mistaken, in encapsulate and swallow the eldritch and as he watched this he even claimed that he could actually put his arm out and he could feel this field of energy around him mm-hmm. and he was on a different ship yeah and so that's that's, weird, that's interesting was he like supposed like if he was actually <laughs> doing stuff like monitoring you'd think he'd be inside the cabin of the ship not like on deck watching it you know what i mean yeah but anyways maybe, that's, that's something that we can talk about sure <laughs> Of course, the, the, and like we already said, the ship disappears. So here we go. Invisibility works. <laughs> but then, of course, there's another effect because there was a flash of light and then the USS Eldridge was completely gone. It didn't reappear as it was supposed to after its cloak cloaked invisibility. It dematerialized and reappeared, as the story goes, over 300 miles away at a shipyard in Norfolk, Virginia. Now story is that the Eldridge was visible there for a few minutes. Who actually witnessed it there is up for debate, and then dematerialized only to reappear right back in its exact spot at the Philadelphia Naval Yard. A completely unexpected turn of events for the people who were conducting this experiment left everyone caught off guard, as uh, I'm sure you could expect. Now, the ship itself was completely fine. It rematerialized out of this green fog And the observers, like allegedly Allende, of the experiment were pretty interested. And obviously the people (laughs) conducting the actual, the the scientists behind it were ecstatic because they thought they'd achieved more than their expectations. Mm -hmm. It's a jaw dropper moment. But the ship was okay, as far as they could tell. This is where things get gruesome, however, where maybe their technology wasn't quite perfected as they had planned yet. Because the crew members aboard the USS Eldridge didn't exactly fare as well on the return teleportation. (laughs) They found various different members of the crew scattered over the ship in horrific arrangements, shall we say. Some of which were actually fused to the ship itself, which Mm -hmm. is kind of the coolest and most gruesome part of this awesome story. Yeah, kind of brings to mind like... um... Uh, Harrison Ford's character in like the second Star Wars movie where he like gets like fused into that metal where he's just like the oh, metal yeah. version of himself. <laughs> yes, like, <laughs> totally. That's what I'm picturing. Two of them were, that, no, that's exactly what it is. There were uh, two deckhands that were fused into the bulkhead of the ship. There were other men scattered across that had their arms, legs, torsos, and other body parts that had been literally fused with the metal of other various parts of the vessel. Mm-hmm. Then there were other men that were simply not there. So even it was a skele- even though it was a skeleton crew, there were a handful, you know, two, three, that allegedly just disappeared altogether. They never made it back <laughs> through this teleportation. Where they might have gone is another is another episode for another interdimensional crazy, crazy day. 
Then there were some men, while they weren't fused to the ship at all, had seemingly just gone insane. And the theory for this story is that it was overexposure to whatever happened, the electromagnets Mm. traveling through space, dematerializing, rematerializing, didn't uh, reorder the brain quite right uh, in the end there. And these men were actually, well, actually, as the story goes, they were put into special military institutions, but were marked as MIA, lost at sea, various other things their families were were lied to. They were told that they were casualties of war. Um, Hmm. Yeah, so that's, I mean, even though, yeah, I mean, I guess that's better than getting the truth of maybe something more horrific than war itself if you refuse to the bulkhead of a ship. I don't know. What do you make of that? I, I, the only thing like I'm wishing we had was an exact number of this supposed crew. I know. Like how many people were present Mm -hmm. and then, yeah, exactly that. How many people allegedly disappeared? Were there ever any crewmen that had records of this? Like, you know, if we actually go into the naval records, like. So uh, yeah, that's something we'll get to. But exactly that. We do have some of those. But there's a conspiracy theory answer for everything to refute it, right? The paper trail back in the day was a little (laughs) bit less uh, tangled than the the digital world that we live in today. So, you know, you could get out your typewriter and perhaps you could change some things, but. (laughs) Exactly. But yeah, I know it's. So. Yeah, and I, which is what I love about these old stories and these these wartime stories, especially. But continuing on here, there were some members that that didn't meet this grisly end. There were allegedly some of this skeleton crew that, although they had been exposed to this, it apparently had no effects. Like strangely, which is weird. These men were part of the program, so they were like either paid off to keep their mouths shut or whatever, but they weren't locked up in institutions and they weren't fused to the ship. They didn't go, they didn't die, then they didn't disappear. However, these men were subject to an effect that was called freezing. And we watched this one really interesting documentary on the Philadelphia experiment that mentioned this, where this freezing effect was happening to these members that didn't have any neurological problems or mental issues after the fact, but where they actually started to drift in and out of either existence or just visibility. Mm-hmm. And there was one case where they were allegedly uh, out drinking uh, a handful of the members of the USS Eldridge right there in Philadelphia at the port. And in classic fashion, or at, le- I, at least I believe it was in Philadelphia, it may have been at another point after the ship had left, but it was after the experiment had happened. And in sort of a classic Hollywood movie fashion is what I'm picturing in my head, a bar fight breaks out between some of these guys that are buddies from the Eldridge and another group of men. And as they're brawling... I don't know what happened, like, in that moment, what, why this made it happen, but as they're brawling, the men from the Eldridge started to fade in and out of visibility, and some of them just vanished altogether. So hmm. it's as if they're, the particles of their, their like, the, the actual mm. matter of their bodies then had changed really? from them coming back. They've been destabilized, perhaps. Whether they're dematerializing and going to another location, or just had some sort of crazy, like a little bit more uh, hardcore biological Harry Potter invisibility cloak. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know. Neither of which are great, depending on who you are. Maybe it is great. I don't know. <laughs> but that's well, a weird story. Man, imagine being in that bar. I, I, can, I just picture in my head totally in pseudoscientific terms, the idea of like their molecular structure has been compromised. You're so right. when, say, they are subject to uh, physical violence, perhaps their atoms cease to keep their arrangement or... They start to behave in ways that are unexpected because of the electromagnetic interference that occurred. Right. Uh, again, right, I'm not a scientist, you know, so. <laughs> and I think at this point, right, neither of us <laughs> are. Qualified we'll probably to have statements. to get Cogswell on here for the part two or something like that. Um, shout out to the Mad Scientist podcast. Mm-hmm. But this, all of these events basically, I guess, became too risky for this program, this Project Rainbow program and any other associated programs because the Navy dismantled it and the the crew the scientific crew that were that were watching that day allegedly were dismantled as well and they were left to live with this they were left to live with the men who got fused to the ship and it was allegedly just this kind of trauma and they they didn't want to participate in it anymore it's just kind of they you're talking they, about they closed it off project rainbow people yeah and they they paid people off they made people sign sign things saying they would never speak of it again you know Dates were changed. Things were logged away. So, is, is, is allegedly how so the story they just goes. never got to Carlos then, hey? Hmm. Well, he was no, he was there that day. Well, he did. Yeah, they, he wasn't scared enough, I suppose, <laughs> or he had some reason to, or he knew somebody. 
Right. <laughs> if you know something, say something. Right? So this is allegedly what happened. So something seeped through the cracks as the as uh, as I guess if you would if you want to believe this if you if you want if you're leaning that way mm-hmm. because it either seeped through to Carl Carlos Allende or Carl as we'll get to Carl Carl. Yep. <laughs> well, okay. So let's get into that then. So sure. who was Allende slash Carl Allen? All this kind of stuff. So, yeah, it was determined to be a man named, like we said, Carlos Miguel Allende, whose handwriting was found in the copy of Jessup's book that was sent anonymously to the ONR's office. So, at that time, no one knew who this man was. Like we said, right, it was completely anonymous. There was no return address. How the hell was he identified, right? So, like I said before, Jessup had had a previous connection with this man Mm -hmm. and had received various letters and writings uh, speaking to things of a similar nature. So, after being summoned to the ONR's office, author Morris Jessup was able to confirm that this very particular handwriting was none other than that of Allende. And it's interesting because uh, Allende did sign each letter with his personal, like, naval ID number. Yeah. Um, So that was something that was very unique and, again, plays into the story later on when we're trying to identify who this individual was. Because as the story started playing out, he became a bit of a ghost, a bit of a legend, so to yeah. speak, and he sort of faded into the mist. He was and a lot of people, all over the place, hey, wasn't he? Apparently, yeah. And a lot of people started to grab onto the story and started to have monetary gains. So this kind of leads into a little bit more of like his frustration, I think, this Allende, and then also multiple Allendes coming forward claiming that they are V1. And so, yeah, it's very interesting because it took a few decades before they actually confirmed who this man was. But again, right, like you, you've gone into, he claims to have been there on the day in question, right? And yes. part of none other than the crew itself that was responsible for monitoring the experiment in question. Yeah. So, yeah, this is where things again get a little bit murky. And we had some questions even about the ship that he was allegedly on board that day, which was the USS Andrew Ferriseth? Ferriseth. Ferriseth. It's kind of this. I just want to say Farnsworth. but (laughs) (laughs) Professor Farnsworth. He would be the perfect person to be working on this type of project. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Right? (laughs) Dr. Farnsworth. Oh, my goodness. But, yeah, like no one else, interestingly, has come forward with any claims that are similar to that of Allende's. So, Mm. like Andrew said, were they paid off? Were they just shot up? Who knows? But this is interesting because, again, right, (laughs) this was from – I I dredged into all of those, like, you know, really – dry, boring government documents or whatever else. And this was from the official paper from the ONR. So they said here, they were talking about what was going on that day and then who this person was. So they say here, supposedly this incredible feat, referring to the experiment, was accomplished by applying Einstein's unified field theory. Allende claimed that he had witnessed the experiment from another ship and that the incident was reported in a Philadelphia newspaper. The identity of the newspaper has never been established, and similarly, the identity of Allende is unknown, and no information exists on his present address. So we have an update on that, and (laughs) uh, yeah, so that was obviously um, published, I think it was published in the 80s, if I'm not mistaken. um, Don't quote me on that, though. (laughs) But, yeah, investigator Robert Gorman actually has tracked down the real identity of Allende, and it is none other than Carl Allen. Mm -hmm. And this is weird because Robert Gorman actually had a close connection to him through a a friend of his that was a family member of Allen's. And they were actually weirdly from the same city. It was uh, Kensington. Mm -hmm. So yeah, after like a lot of research and a lot of dead ends, I would say, and a lot of people that had come forward claiming to be Allende and trying to make that assertion, this Robert Gorman actually did find the one guy who had the piece of paper to prove with the same, um, what's it called? That same naval ID number. Yeah. So he was able to put the pieces together and prove that this guy was actually, uh, yeah, a a very, so he wasn't, he didn't work. How would you, how would you describe Alan? (laughs) I, well, that's just a, (laughs) just a, a, a savant to a certain degree. 
I don't know how I would describe him exactly. There's, there's, it's weird how his family talked about him and, and other people have written about him. I feel like we're maybe getting a little bit ahead of ourselves here. A in little terms bit, of yeah. Breaking this all down, yeah. As because far as, obviously, yeah. the, the letters originated from this guy who mm-hmm. we've been talking about, who went under this alias of Allende. We've now discovered that his name, his real name, is Carl Allen. Mm-hmm. And right then and there, for a lot of people, obviously, like that seems like a big fat dead end to the story, right? Because it because now we're now we're just critiquing the credibility of of this guy, Carl Allen. Was he on the ship? Was he on the, mm-hmm. the Ferris Seth? What is the actual purpose of this? Is he just a UFO nut? Is he kind of like how people uh, buried um, the Australian pilot that disappeared, right? Like that we talked about because of his, because he was maybe not, because he had shitty grades and then disappeared, right? Mm-hmm. Because was he just super into UFOs? I don't know. I've got some theories that associated with Carl Allen where I feel like there may be a third party involved. Uh, but I'll, I'll, get, I'll get to that. There's more to dissect on that front, but... In getting into the actual story itself that he provided here and the legitimacy of that in in particular, Mm -hmm. we have some interesting, I don't even know, contradictions, (laughs) I guess, to his sort of claims. And according to the Naval, or sorry, Navy Research and Heritage Command records that you can find online, uh, the USS Andrew Furseth definitely has a story of its own that doesn't align with what Allende was saying. According to According the paper to trail. the official records. Right. right. <laughs> so this is where we're going to get into a little bit more of the murkiness, right? Because they say here that you can see all of the report cards for the Ferriseth and many other ships, obviously, um, in custody of the modern military branch, National Archives and yeah. Records Administration. So anyone can access that. And it basically has, like, a a detailed log of the report, the action reports, the war diaries, and deck logs of all World War II Navy ships, including the Eldridge. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. So including the Eldridge, but we're talking about the Faraseth for a second here. Yes. So, again, right, these report cards list all of the ports of call, the dates of their visits, and uh, convoy designation, if any. Okay, so it says here, quote, The movement report card shows that Andrew Faraseth left Norfolk with convoy UGS-15 on the 16th of August, 1943, and arrived at Casablanca on the 2nd of September. The ship left Casablanca on the 19th of September and arrived off Cape Henry, Norfolk on the 4th of October. Mm-hmm. The Faraseth left Norfolk with convoy UGS-22 on October 25th and arrived at Oran, on the 12th of November it says here the U- sorry the archives has a letter from lieutenant junior grade William S Dodge master of the Andrew Fairseth in 1943 categorically denying that he or his crew observed any unusual event while in Norfolk Eldridge and US Fairseth were not even in Norfolk at the same time but that is the end of the quote there. But to me, that last sentence is actually kind of interesting because it says here, the Eldridge and the Ferriseth were not even in Norfolk at the same time, but the Eldridge was never supposed to be in Norfolk at that time. It was in Pennsylvania. Allegedly. Right? Right. So allegedly. So if it had briefly transferred for all of two or three minutes over to Norfolk, That's is that where phrasing. there's a little bit of a loophole going Ooh. on there? Anyways, and then we also had some questions regarding this other statement that I said above here. So it Mm -hmm. arrived in Cape Henry, Norfolk, on October 4th. The events in question we're talking about occurred on the 28th of October. Yes. So allegedly, the Ferriseth was en route during that time because it left on October 25th and arrived at Oran on the 12th of November. So when you look up Oran, there's a couple of places that will come up on the map. And one of them is Algeria, which makes sense because it's a coastal... uh, uh, what's it called? The coastal port city. Yeah, and the other one is in the U.S. Landlocked, and it's Missouri, landlocked. Yeah, which I, yeah. So, so that was it sort couldn't of have weird. been a U.S. location. They don't actually go into. They didn't go into more detail about on it. that, but I'm thinking it did travel across because mm-hmm. if it's making trips to like Casablanca, like where are we? But going? also, just the date that we do have there, where the 25th is really close Cas- to the 28th alleged date. Where if it, if it was there on the twenty eighth, three days from that, three days from then, where it actually is on record being in Norfolk, but Virginia, it, but it that would have been somewhere in the middle of the North Atlantic Ocean. 
at that point. Potentially, right. uh, you know, but numbers are easy to fudge. I think that's the conspiracy theorist so. uh, thing. And, yeah. and I'm just saying, like, that is pretty close. So here's something I have to say. Okay. Okay, like, and uh, this is kind of maybe should be closer down to the theory section. But, you know, coming back to the Carl Allen, you know, Carlos Allende, and we'll critique him further and really kind of be like, is any of this true? Or like, where does this real information come from? If he was really a crackpot and definitely wasn't from Norfolk, Virginia, or maybe didn't have access in the 1950s to naval ship records over the internet, mm-hmm. unless he's making a lot of phone calls or something, or it was a highly publicized thing in the paper and he somehow got a Virginia paper, like, why would you have almost the exact date for that ship being there right on bang on for a made-up story in Virginia and then pick a ship that was never in Philadelphia in the USS Eldridge, allegedly according to records. Mm-hmm. Why wouldn't you pick a ship that was there? Mm-hmm. If you're going to go to the effort of knowing that the first Seth was in Virginia, that, so that was just a... Hey, I think that's, I think that's, that's a, just him having a series of darts that, and trying to hit a target. And that is and maybe, that is extremely lucky, then, maybe, in my yeah. opinion. Like, that is... That's where that's the weird, a ambiguity bit. lies, right? Isn't like that a bit weird to you? Doesn't that seem like kind of coincidental? It's a tiny bit. Like of all the naval ships, random names you could pick, you pick those two. One of them is actually in Norfolk, but maybe near, he near was the visiting date. at the time. Maybe he was actually because he was in the navy. He does have those the, the ID and everything, so right. it's not as if he didn't have no knowledge. Yeah, but he wasn't at the exact. Well, yeah, I guess maybe. It just it just seems like if you're going to make up the story, it's only half made up. Mm-hmm. And if you had the information, why do it this way? It's mm-hmm. weird. It's weird. It's weirdly put together. Well, I had other questions, too. Because, like, when I was looking at these, this official report or letter or whatever it's called um, from the ONR just dealing with this, I was like, wow, this is a very... They have, like, a whole website, a couple of sections dedicated to it just to kind of lay out the evidence as they see it, right? And the real series of events. And my question was, why would the Navy feel the need to create such documents and letters that are, you know, uh, disproving these these allegations? Mm-hmm. And I would kind of said, like, oh, surely a crackpot from a small town in Pennsylvania isn't a threat to the Navy's reputation. Shatner pause. <laughs> <laughs> but I honestly, though, like, um, it wasn't really about the influence of Allende. It was more so the fact that the Navy was being contacted in numerous times yeah. about this yeah. because of its uh, ubiquity in uh, the culture of the time. And yeah, so I was like, you know, that does make sense. But there was other questions I had too, because we had multiple references referring to how there were multiple copies made of this annotated version of Jessup's book. Yeah, And so... Why did the Navy, because it was the Navy that was responsible for making these copies, and I was just like really curious as to why. And according to the ONR's official report, it says here, quote, two officers then assigned to the ONR took a personal interest in the book and showed it to Jessup. Jessup concluded that the writer of those comments in his book was the same person who had written him about the Philadelphia experiment. These two officers personally had the book retyped and arranged for the reprint in a typewritten form mm-hmm. of 25 copies. The officers and their personal belongings have left the ONR many years ago, and the ONR does not have a file copy of the annotated book. That's very odd. So who the heck were these two individuals? Well, Why we, are they so, so no, curious? We, so we do have those names. Yes, um, right. Yeah, okay. and, and, uh, we'll, and that was from the history documentary. Yeah, they we, came up and gave statements, correct? They did. Yeah. yeah uh, we didn't actually, we don't have it right in front of us, but we can list those later for you guys. And we're just just so everyone knows, this is a part one. Uh, so there is going to be a juicy part two, getting into some crazy stuff as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, these obviously there were there was a division of the interest <laughs> in this type of stuff, and or a directive um, for. Yes. These two to be interested in exactly, it, right? Exactly, because um, there was some conflict. Like you get, you hear this all the time between the different departments of the U.S. military, the Navy and the Air Force in particular. Sure. With this one, correct? Mm-hmm. If I, yeah. If I didn't have that mistake, I think you're yes. Mm-hmm. And they were basically. Um, the statements that were made on that documentary were that basically it was a closed door. They didn't get any information from the Air Force, and so they were forced to conduct their own types of experiments because of yeah. the UFO question. Right. It was something that was a hot topic and re- behind closed doors. <laughs> and obviously there were parts of, and very much like Jessup reading the letters and being like, hey, this is a lot of rambling nonsense, but there was something there. There was, there was, there was nuggets there. 
why mm. type up 25 cop? Like, is this just an interest piece? You're going to kind of give them to your 25 buddies that are interested in UFOs in the Navy? Like, that's a very specific number. That sounds like I'm picturing, like, I'm picturing the big board, the big room mm-hmm. uh, with, like, the, the, the panel of, like, the Navy special yeah. division looking into UFOs at that time. These were the guys that were interviewing Kenneth Arnold. Yeah. Right? These were the guys that were talking to those characters. Mm-hmm. Probably know something about the men in black. <laughs> well, yeah, that's where, again, it's just, uh, it gets into murky territory as far as wh- who who was involved and what their actual, yeah, what the aims were of all this. And mm-hmm. yeah, no, so it, yeah, it's it's very intriguing to think that the ONR doesn't keep their own official copy on record, even though I would imagine that it was uh, departmental, uh, it was expense to the department. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know. But yeah, there's more to uncover here. Um with our mysterious friend, uh, Carlos Allende. Carlos. Carlos. Or uh, Carl Allen, if you want to call Carl. him that. Carl. I know, right? Because this was interesting. And the first reference I got to this was actually from the Skeptoid article written by Brian Dunning. And he refers to Robert Gorman as a, a researcher and a colleague, I guess, yeah. an associate of theirs. Yeah. Who, again, like I said, was from the same area as Allende. And was able to un- uncover his actual identity after decades of a big question mark surrounding that. Which character. seems weird, too. It's like, how is it that hard if he was such a... I know. Come on, how is it that hard? Because, I think it was just because there were other people coming out, too, and claiming. Like, you know what I mean? There was right. just, like, all this... Well, they know. did say in the documentary we watched as well that they kept looking... Like, the researchers kept looking for that name, and then it would be like, that... And even if it wasn't Carl Allen, like, there would be another Carlos Allende, and then the postage would change. Mm-hmm. Or the mailing address would change, or the phone number would change. Yeah. The so state, maybe that's the state just, would change. Like it would always change. Again, maybe that's just part of the bizarre. This is why character. I'm thinking there's a third party involved. Maybe. Okay. Okay. So that's interesting. Andrew has his own conspiratorial angle sure, on that. Sure. But let's get into just the the story of it, right? Because Carl Allen was a notoriously odd fellow, and he wasn't part of the Odd Fellows like guild or anything <laughs> like that. He was just an odd person. Right. Very intelligent, supposedly, but more in a savant way. Like he. He was highly intelligent, but again, failed like grade nine in like the same. Yeah, like his brother said he got like the highest state score on an IQ test, but then yeah. like failed. Second like, highest. Or yeah. So, yeah, something. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, his family definitely considered him to be a bit of an odd duck, but obviously like knew him and loved him. But he was known to write and ramble in the margins of anything he could get his hands on as far as like paper, books, anything like that. Sure. Magazines. And he, according to his family, would actually send copies of his annotated versions to anyone he thought might be interested in what he had to say. Mm-hmm. So this is where we get the connection with this Jessup's book. Did he just randomly pick it up in some bookstore and just flip it open and just start going to town? Or did someone send it to him? Or did someone send it to him? Who knows? But yeah, like we said, over the years, he kind of existed as sort of a ghost in the fringes of this Philadelphia experiment legend. <laughs> yeah. And at one point, I think he got to the point where he was very frustrated with the monetary gains, like all the movies and the whatever else that other people were putting out. This is way after the fact when he's older. Way yeah. after the fact that he actually confessed to have made the whole thing up. Mm-hmm. And this was interesting because he eventually recanted that confession. Yes. So again, and it just is just weird, and it lends very little credibility to his story. It doesn't. It, yeah, no, it doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't. We've it, come across this a few times in different yeah. stories, right, where people will say something later on, re- take it back, and then say, oh, no, actually. Like, it happens a mm-hmm. lot. There's a psychology behind it. Yeah. Yeah, I know. That's true. And it doesn't mean, like, if people are flip-flopping, they're lying necessarily or whatever. They're just they messed up. Have, yeah, they might have their own issues mentally. But in the book, The Philadelphia Experiment, Project Invisible, written by Charles Barretts, along with William Moore Consulting, the book described Alan, um, oh, sorry, Allende, as anything but reliable. And this is kind of interesting. So it says here, um, this is a quote from the book, Allende is about six feet tall, balding, spare of frame, and usually somewhat shabbily dressed. His eyes often show suspicion, but he occasionally smiles gently. He is given to rambling monologues about his thoughts on many topics besides the Philadelphia Experiment. When he does talk about the Philadelphia Experiment, he often appears to be keeping something back or avoiding a direct answer. When pressed for information, he will change the subject. He will make appointments, then not show up, or will appear unannounced. 
<laughs> just to kind of give a little bit more to uh, his character there. Sure. I mean, mm-hmm. I guess that's... But the, don't be misguided by that, though, necessarily, because, like, even just anything as reliable, I mean, a lot of that's, like, just sounds like an eccentric person, like, right? Yeah. It doesn't necessarily mean what you saw or what was told to you. Like, that's the thing. It's like, I n- I don't believe... I don't... I'm not saying I believe Carl Allen, mm-hmm. but I'm... but. But what is why why this story is so interesting, why it's such an enduring conspiracy theory is because we all know that these types of notions, these types of experiments, these types of goals are not that far off from things that were actually attempted by by in by secret, you know, branches of the military and still Mm -hmm. happens today. You can't like it's crazy to think it'd be naive to think that people weren't at least considering the, yeah. These types of things. One question I have for you right now is like, I'm trying to picture this person who's literally like, this is another, this is from the Skeptoid article. It says here, he was something of a dark horse of the family, a creative and imaginative loner, notorious for annotating anything and everything in the house and sending bizarre writings and claims to everyone in the family for any occasion. Like that to me, I'm trying to picture someone like that being in the Navy at all. Like, yeah, I'm, like I don't, how does I don't that even that. add up? How do we do we even have our actual record of that though? Well, yeah, because Robert Gorman, who confirmed his identity supposedly, had that piece of paper from. Didn't him. the Navy say though? Like, the, I thought there was a naval record. Like, we can come back to this, you guys, too, mm. because right now we're just kind of speculating on his character and and things like that. But I, we'll have to come back to it. I thought there was something saying that. Well, definitely saying that he wasn't on the the Furaseth. But maybe in the Navy in general. Mm-hmm. Or maybe had gone through the training and never even ended up on a ship. Maybe. And had like the, had the, had, had the, the little, little, it was like a know, certificate. Had it the like plastic a thing. certificate. I mean, you know what I mean? We'll like, come back to that. But, mm-hmm. um, so that to me is like big question mark right there. I'm just like, this guy looks like Ed Leeds Scalman. Kind of does. Just looking at him in the picture here. Yeah, he's got that interesting look about him. I he don't just know looks yet. kind of frail. He I does. Mean, I guess this was an older, maybe an older photo. But yeah. he's the perfect, he's like the, in that sense, like, hey guys, like just to keep kind of the conspiracy train <laughs> chugging along here because it's fun and that's what we're here for, right? Like we're not, we're here to, it, we're here to speculate on this because it's interesting, right? And I think he's the perfect, he's the perfect, of course we want the truth. We also want to believe. And I he's going to be like a, like, what's his name? <laughs> Jack and... Oh, it was a few good men. You can handle the truth. I can. Yes, I can. <laughs> <laughs> He's almost like the perfect patsy, though, isn't he? Like, or the perfect person to act as a weird kind of a conduit, because if it did backfire and come back to him, it would just be really easy to discredit. Mm. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So maybe someone sent him the book. Maybe sent him, Maybe someone sent him the book and it was annotated by someone else. That's why it seemed like three things and it was just like copied because like they were trying to get him going kind of thing like yeah and they just used him as a third party to 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 to, to get the information out there all right well that's an interesting thought well how is it's not that far off i mean the, the he sent the book to the navy what's the what it's only one extra step someone sends it to him he loves this kind of stuff it's perfect mm-hmm. so if the story was any way real you're saying that he was sent to him already annotated I mean, maybe just the one juicy nugget that had the, got the got the Navy most interested. Honestly, I think if he literally was just sent the book, he would have gone to town. You know what I mean? With like, the na- with with those specifics though of Norfolk, Virginia, USS oh Eldridge, no. the, the exact like details of that experimental. Well, he's stuff, a highly right? imaginative loner. If you live in your head all the time, you can create very convincing worlds. Like no, of course you can. Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure. That's an interesting thought. But we have this juxtaposition of the Navy's interest though too, right? Their genuine interest in why, like, if yeah. if he just had something that was like, oh, the Philadelphia experiment was a bunch of UFOs showed up and sucked up a ship into a UFO, mm-hmm. they probably wouldn't have even asked Jessup to show up. Well, like and it then, was a well, mind more. you, too, this is happening over a decade later. That's it's true. 12 years later. Right. Who knows if these particular two officers from the ONR had any information on what these particular events were addressing. Mm-hmm. So they were doing their own investigation simultaneously. Right. It's almost like an X-File, right? They're it opening is like, up their it own is X-File. Like an X-File. And these two investigators who, um, apologies, we don't have them named, but we will have them named yes. in the second part. But yes. Yeah, no, it's like, it, it, the story only gets weirder. Though. It does. And this is where we're getting into more... I don't even know. Like, this is a little bit darker to me because, like, if you want to believe this wasn't as simple as it was, then, uh, yeah, we might we might have a lot more that could mm-hmm. be to the story. So, yeah, not quite the end of the story, though, because in 1959, our poor friend Jessup 
is going to encounter an unfortunate demise. Not before, however, he had actually allegedly come across a breakthrough in the case. So, unfortunately, Jessup was found dead in his car in October, sorry, not October, April 20th, 1959, in a Florida park. Yes. He was basically found unresponsive with his car running with the classic, uh, the um, tube back up into the the vehicle itself. So he was gassing himself, I guess. Which is weird, right? Why would you do that in a park? I feel like people could intervene, right? If you're in a public... Sp- Anyways, that's just my initial yeah, record. But yeah. his death was viewed through highly suspicious eyes by many people. And perhaps for very good reason. Because allegedly the day before, he had contacted one of his fellow associates, a man by the name of Mason Valen- or Manson Valentine, I should say. Awesome name. Yeah, that's a dope name. Yeah. And he had arranged to meet with him the next day, uh, claiming to have made a breakthrough regarding this Philadelphia experiment case that he had been researching for the last four years after having been contacted by the ONR's office. Mm -hmm. So very unfortunately, he was found dead in Dade County, Florida, with a hose between the exhaust pipe and the rear window of his vehicle. The death was ruled a suicide, however... Some of his colleagues didn't agree. Some did believe it was a suicide, and others speculated that it could have been related to the Allende case, and it could have either been pushing him over the brink or or not. Others believed that it had something to do with a recent divorce as well. Right. So he had been under scrutiny for quite a few months prior, yeah. and this was because he had been exhibiting odd behaviors. He had allegedly, according to some sources, considered suicide and had mentioned this to friends. However, others believed it to be more complicated and somehow connected to his alleged epiphany surrounding this Philadelphia experiment and yeah. his planned meeting with Manson Valentine. Right. So Manson Valentine, he is a pretty fringe character. Couldn't really find a lot on him. There's not a big online footprint. Mm-hmm. But yeah, there were some photos of him that we saw in the history documentary. And he looks like kind of like your classic, like, I, I don't even know. Like, he, he's kind of creepy looking, <laughs> to be honest. Like, your classic, like, mid-century, like, uh, <laughs> Serial killer? Like, I don't know. What are you trying to say? No, no. Like a experimental, like almost okay. like... Um, like spooky doctor, scary guy. Kind of, yeah. Okay. Who knows? All but right. that was just the one picture I saw. See, well then that, th- see that, <laughs> that description works perfectly for some of Andrew's, uh, and I, yeah, just, yes, I just referred to myself in the third person, <laughs> conspiracy theories because uh, y- this is odd. And this is kind of where we're wrapping up part mm-hmm. one because we feel like this is the perfect point before we lead into a lot more high strangeness associated with this. And I am so, so excited for part two. But... Why? So there was an interview with his daughter, Jessup's mm-hmm. daughter, uh, in in I believe it was an early '90s documentary uh, on on the Philadelphia Experiment and just him in general. And she said that when she received the phone call from what was her not her biological mother, but who his wife, his mm-hmm. second wife at the yeah. time, to tell her about his death, she responded by asking how he did it, mm-hmm. as if she was expecting him to be in that state of mind. But she also said that she had had recent conversations with him and that obviously he was depressed from some recent things that had happened. Allegedly, he had told some friends that he had considered considered such things as well. Um, but at the same time, of course, we have him reaching out to Manson Valentine 24 hours before doing this. And that, that alone um, is bizarre because mm-hmm. why would you kill yourself right before you tell someone something also, if you're going to kill yourself, if, to me, like, obviously, I, you can't be put yourself in someone else's head. But if you're in that state of mind, you probably don't really have the motivation to continue on hardcore researching into uh, Car- Carlos Allende mm-hmm. and the Philadelphia experiment. And you're digging up answers to then yeah. call up a buddy and be like, we need to talk. I'm going to talk to you tomorrow. Mm-hmm. That seems odd. You usually don't make plans. That doesn't match up. Yeah, it's it's it is weird. All the timing is weird. Doing it in a public place is really weird. Like the only thing I can think of is like, oh, maybe I want to die in a pretty park or something. But it's like that's strange. Very, someone could inter- intervene. Yeah, yeah. But it's almost as if someone wanted it to be very clear. Mm-hmm. Right out in the open. Well, that to me, it kind of speaks to like a yeah, a little bit of an assassination. It's like job. a fifty-fifty. It's kind of like. 
If he was just found with a gunshot wound to the head, everyone, that would just be confirmation that everything he was looking into was legit, mm. basically. Yeah, it's, it's a little it bit more random. ambiguous. Yeah, exactly, because... Because, yeah, it's not your classic hit job, but it could definitely, like, what if he was knocked unconscious and then put in the car and then that whole thing's rigged up and then, boom, exactly. there you go. You know what I mean? Then you're, yeah. That we don't me, have the other autopsy. There was just, oh, just suicide. Yeah, like, was there was there uh, bruising on the back? Yeah, was he whacked on the back of the head? Mm-hmm. Did he get the Lucille, the Lucille uh, champagne bottle to the back of the head? Or drugged. Or drugged. Mm-hmm. I know, right? There's so many questions still. We have a lot more to get into as far as... Our theories and general discussion. Is yeah, there anything you want to tee up there? I for do part want to two? tease a little bit of that. So, for part <laughs> two, we wanted to really try to dial in not so much, well, definitely, obviously, like revisiting the story, maybe breaking down a little bit more of the believability of the Philadelphia experiment in and of itself, but more so getting into the technologies and research into things like teleportation, mm-hmm. invisibility, some other clandestine military things that may or may not be associated with this having a percent of truth to it in some way, including things like the Nazi bell Mm -hmm. and other technologies happening at the same time across the pond, potentially. Exactly. And also just other paranormal phenomena that might actually be intertwined with this. And Exactly. Do we want to tee up that one, too? I don't know. Maybe we'll save that. Yeah. Do you want to save it? Mm -hmm. We may or may not be getting into some things associated with electronic fog, which I'm very excited about. Yes. So... Thank you guys so much for listening to this part one. Thank you all uh, so much to all of our Patreon supporters uh, and to our Patreon producers and just for everyone for listening to the show. So yeah, but special thank you to our amazing producers, Adam Kellums, Nightwing, uh, Kitsune, and our brand new producer uh, to join us on uh, Patreon. And we can't wait to work with them, uh, Jackson G. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, thank you guys for supporting us on Patreon. Check us out on there if you haven't already. Also, check us out on YouTube mm-hmm. and subscribe to us on YouTube. We never mention that. We're on YouTube. Uh, we need a little motivation to do more video on there. We're shooting for a 1,000 subscribers this year. It would be kind of cool. So subscribe to Into the Portal on YouTube. And also, of course, subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and leave us that five-star review. Help us with the, beat the algorithm. Uh, so we can we can win the fight in the podcast algorithm war and uh yeah stay tuned for part two because uh, einstein's unified field theory ties in with tesla ties in with teleportation ties in with electronic fog ties in with ufos ties in with all kinds of awesomeness we're getting into it all <laughs> so leave a comment uh, on social media tell us what you think about this part one we want to hear your theories so if you don't come follow us into the portal podcast on facebook into the portal podcast on instagram into the portal one on twitter and into the portal podcast on tiktok even though we haven't done anything there yet uh, into the portal.com is our website and straight up strange.com is our network homepage. Mm-hmm. anything else you'd like to say before we go Amber? network homepage is currently under construction it is under so. construction that is true <laughs> but it will be back up soon yes and uh stay tuned for that yeah that's all i have for today i just want to thank everyone again for yeah tuning into this part one of a two-part series it's nice to be back in the conspiracy theory corner i'm, yeah. I'm happy to be back here this is fun feels like home <laughs> <laughs> all right you guys until next time on into the portal your gateway to the bizarre Discover more shows like this one at straightupstrange.com.